I love, um, I love history. In fact, one of the questions uh, from the pastor search committee was, "What are what are things I enjoy doing for fun?" And and I've discovered, in spite of all of the schooling that I have had, and how um, uh, sometimes you can be burnt out by reading. I love reading uh, biographies, really thick, fat biographies, for whatever reason, are very relaxing to me. I read biographies of people I like and people I don't like. Uh, I learn all sorts of stuff. And, and so in light of that, let me just ask you kind of a trivia question. How many of you remember where you were on July, July 16th, 1980? I can tell you without a doubt, I have no memory of that day because it, I was still eight and a half years away from existing in this world. <laughs> but on that day, from a hotel room in Detroit, Michigan, the newly nominated Ronald Reagan for uh, president made a phone call. Speculation was rampant. Who would he ask to be his running mate? And he made a phone call to his primary challenger during the primaries, George H.W. Bush. And in that phone call, uh, he asked Bush two questions. He needed to know two things. One was very general. He said, can you support my policy positions? Super generic. Probably a good thing if your vice president supports your policies. He said, yep, yeah, can. The second question was this, though. He said, can you support my stance on abortion as being opposed to abortion? It's the only specific question he asked. It was the question that would determine whether Bush would be his vice president. Of course, Bush answered yes, Bush would be his vice president. And three years later into his administration, Ronald Reagan would make a proclamation uh, naming that January 22nd, that Saturday, January 22nd of 1984, as the National Day for the Sanctity of Human Life. And that, uh, that day has been honored by and large uh, for the last almost 40 years. There's been some periods where it is not, but all throughout our country, the various Sundays of January, churches have in different ways and different avenues taken and, and looked at and brought attention to uh, the sanctity of human life. And since we hit a point last week where we finished Philippians chapter 2, we will pick back up in Philippians next week. But I thought it, thought it good for us to take a, a pause and to look at and really answer one question. What is God's heart towards human life? What is God's heart towards human life? You and I live in a culture where when we look around us, what we see is a message that is very clear, which is life is no longer sacred in the eyes of our world. Whether it be from issues of, of the unborn, whether it be through racial tensions, whether it be through rising murders, whether it be through uh, even film and, and shows and, and media that, that demonstrate a flippancy for killing off characters provided you don't know their names. There is a devaluing of human life such that as a college pastor working with my staff, we would discover students who grew up in Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving, solid churches who would affirm most truth you would expect and hope to affirm biblically, but whose, whose opinions on the sanctity of human life were less than biblical because the deception of the enemy through the voices of our culture are so loud and pervasive. So just want to take a, a time this morning and let Scripture drive it. This is not, meant to, this is, this is not a, really in light of even the national day. This is just in light of what does Scripture say is God's heart for human life. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up to the book of Psalms. I want you to go to Psalms 139, Psalm 139. For some, it will be a familiar psalm. Maybe for some, it will be new. 
But we find in Psalm 139, we find the psalmist is faced with a dilemma. He is faced living in a world that is wicked and violent and hostile. And in the face of that, and in the face of standing up against that wickedness, he, he writes this cry of praise that reflects upon the character of God. God's all-knowing, God's all-presence, God's all-power, God's all-just, but specifically how God does all those things in his relationship to humanity. So look, look with me. Look what he says, Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize or you, you literally winnow my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He walks through these first several verses and he draws attention to the fact that the Lord is the one who knows all things. We would use the theological term, uh, not just God is all-knowing, but he is uh, omniscient. He, he knows all things and specifically in knowing all things, it's that he knows you and me as human beings completely and totally. Do you see the language there? You have searched me. You have explored and searched out. You have, it's the idea of considering someone in detail, subjecting them to thorough analysis so as to discern the true character. Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. That word known can be as general as, yeah, I've, I've heard that person's name before. I know their name. Or it can, it can be, depending on context, as intimate as the intimate knowing of a husband and his wife. The idea is that God doesn't just thoroughly search and examine us, but there is an intimate, deep, and personal knowledge there. It says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, there's, there's no aspect of our movement, our being, that, that God's not aware of. He sees us when we end our days. He sees us when we begin our days. There's no mundane task. He does not know and see. It says that God understands our thoughts from afar. Every single thought that runs through you and I's minds, you and our minds, the crazy ones, the weird ones, the, the ones that come nonstop, the, the ones when you're tired and you can't string your words together, the ones when you just had your cup of coffee for the 10th time and you got more words running through your mind than you know how to express. He understands our thoughts, even the thoughts we ourselves don't understand. It says you scrutinize, you winnow, the idea of, of taking a pitchfork and grabbing the grain and holding it up to the wind and the wind blowing the chaff away. You scrutinize, you winnow my path, the way in which we walk. He examines and, and tests and tries all our ways. He's intimately acquainted. This knowledge of the Lord is so pervasive, it says that he has enclosed us, he has besieged us. There is no way to escape the all-knowing knowledge of the Lord for you and for me as human beings. It's not just that he knows everything, but he knows everything about each and every person. He intimately knows and understands our good, our bad, and our ugly. 
He knows our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations. He knows our deepest, darkest secrets and insecurities and fears. He's intimately acquainted uh, with, with, with all of our hurt and, and pain and grief. And he absolutely knows every last drop of the brokenness of sin in our lives. He knows every little detail of our lives. And he's intentional. Understand what this passage shows about God and his knowing of humanity is God is not a disinterested God in human beings. Amen. He is deeply interested. He is interested in, in such a way that, that he knows each and every one of us with intimate, minute, fine detail. And understand how amazing that is because Jeremiah chapter 17 says, who can understand the heart? For the heart is deceptive above all things. No man, no human can understand their own heart. And then God speaks and he says, I know the heart and I test its ways. Amen. You and I are not even capable of fully comprehending and understanding ourselves. But we have a deeply interested personal God who because we are human knows every last part of who we are. And understand, church family, this morning, the great news of this. It's not just that God knows every single part of us, but see, we have a fuller story than the psalmist. The psalmist was looking forward to the day when the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation would happen. We live in the day when they've happened. Which means that for you and I, when we say that God knows all things, if you are in Christ, Understand the magnitude. God knows every last drop of grossness that you would never want shared at church. And he still claims you and I as sons and daughters because we are covered in the blood of Christ. Amen. He knows us. And understand, if you're in this, in this room today, if you're joining us online and you've not been covered in the blood of Christ, you've not come to a personal response of repentance and faith in Christ, then on one hand, the fact that the Lord knows everything, the fact that the Lord sees you bare for who you are may be terrifying, but understand this, that the God who knows everything about you wants to be the God who knows you in personal relationship. There is hope that the God who looks down and knows every aspect of the wickedness of humanity, instead of distancing himself and fleeing, loves us even though we did not love him and sent his one and only unique, perfectly loved son who stepped down out of heaven in humility and took on flesh and far from distancing himself at the wickedness of humanity, came and entered into the wickedness of humanity that he might go to the cross and rise again, that men and women, human beings, would have the opportunity to know him in personal relationship. God knows us completely. How does God relate to humanity? He relates to humanity by knowing all about us. But he's not just all knowing of us. He is all present. Look with me at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I were to ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me 
Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness overwhelms me, the the light around me will be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you, O God. See, God didn't just, in his heart for humanity, know all about humanity. God is present amongst all humanity. See what the psalmist says. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee? Where can I get away from your presence, God? If I go to heaven, to the the place where your presence is most fully revealed and seen and experienced, to your throne room, guess what? You're there. But if I go to the opposite, if I go to the other end, if I go to Sheol, to the realm of death, to the place that awaits for those that oppose you, even there you are. And understand, we don't have time to do a whole search through the Scriptures, but when when we say that God is all-present, we don't mean that God is just so big that there's nowhere we can go that's not in Him. That's not what we mean. What we mean by God being all-present or His omnipresence is that the 100% fullness of God is in every single speck of space in existence, seen or unseen. That there's nowhere you and I can go that we're not just surrounded by God big, but nowhere we can go where God is not in the fullness of his being present. And not only that, but should we catch the imagery, should we get up in the wings of dawn in that that crisp morning where it's still slightly dim and, and find our way to the remotest part of the sea? If I go to heaven or if I go to hell, there God is. But but if I go to even the most remote I mean, what's more remote? Imagine in your mind just being in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Ocean. There is nowhere more remote or isolated away from anybody and everybody than that. And he says, even there, God, not just your present, but your present to lead me. You will lead me with your hand. You will lay hold of me. There is a personalness in this presence Again, if God is not disinterested in knowing, he's also not removed. He wants to be present. He delights to guide, to lead, to lay hold of. As you and I walk in times and places where darkness envelops and we cannot see and we cannot go, what does it mean that he is present with humanity? That's a darkness which is frightening and terrifying to you and I. He sees with perfect light. He's not terrified. He's not worried. He's not frightened. He sees completely and totally, which means, church family, when we see God's heart for humanity, God's heart, he is not the the removed God of the deist who got everything started, and and yes, he's there, but, but he doesn't really interact. He's distant. That's not what we see. We see a picture of a God who, as Paul says in, in Acts chapter 17, is not far from each of us, but desires that people would would reach out for him and, and find him, for in him we live and move and exist. He is intimately present with humanity. Lost or saved, it does not matter where you go in this world, God is present. But church family, just like we saw how the all God's total knowledge takes on a whole new meaning for those of us in Christ, so his presence, because if you are in Christ, not only is there nowhere you can go to get, to get away from him, not only are we always around him, 
But when Jesus looks at us as his sons and daughters and says, I am with you always, it's not because he's around us, it's because he lives within us. And his presence is a sign of favor, of power, of strength. There is no place, church family, where you and I can ever get to. There is no place where in moments of despair or even outright rebellion as a son or daughter of God, there is no place so remote that you and I could wander. No sin you and I could sneak into that God is not present around us, that God is not present within us, and that God does not delight to lay hold of us and to lead us in his everlasting ways. Oh, church family, what, what news, what reality? His presence means you and I can find security and, and leadership and light in the midst of powerlessness and isolation and darkness. He is with us. What comfort Do you see God's heart for humanity? God is not distant. He is not removed. He is is present with us. And what he delights to do in bringing a person to salvation is not just to experience the fact that God is present around us, but God wants us to know his presence within our own hearts and personal relationship with him. We see God as all-knowing. We see God as all-present. But we also see that God is all-powerful and in his power He is the all-creative God. Look with me, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully woven together in the depths of the earth. The depths of the earth being a a phrase for the hiddenness of a mother's womb. Your eyes, God, have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when yet there was not one of them. Church family, listen to the language here. For you formed. It's a word meaning to create something, to to bring into existence. But it's not just to bring into existence. It carries with it the idea of taking possession. You see, God didn't just create each one of us uniquely, but the fact that he created us means he has ownership over us. He is the owner of all humanity. He has created all humanity. We know from Genesis that what makes humanity's creation unique, God speaks all of creation into being, and then there's a distinction in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them in the image of God. Being made in the image of God, God creating us in his image, that means he owns his image. He has rights to all humanity. Speaks of creation. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully, meaning when I, I'm fearfully that when I, when I look upon the creation, the, 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 the human life, there is a reverence and an awe that comes upon me. 
That's what fearfully means, to, to be in a state of awe, to see something as awesome, wonderfully made, wonderfully meaning to be distinguished, something that's marked as unique and different. Understand, you and I as human beings are unique and different from everything else in creation, both the seen universe, and that includes the unseen realm. You and I are different from the angels. We're different from, we're different from the trees. We're different from the wells. You and I are unique because we are in his image. And not only are you and I unique as humans from the rest of creation, but as the human you are, you are unique, you are unique from the rest of the humans who are unique because God has fearfully and wonderfully woven the response of the psalmist says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Deep down in the core of who I am, I understand and see, God, that your work in making human life is good. My frame was not hidden from you. You, you skillfully wrought. That word for skillfully wrought is the idea of a, a master uh, tapestry weaver who with tiny thread and, and needle weaves these wonderfully intricate and unique and glorious tapestries. Not only is this language speak of God's involvement in the forming of every human life, not as passive at all, but as intimate and detailed and precise God's not just the creator and weaver of life. He's the author of life. It says, in your book, all the days that were ordained for me, God has written out a plan for every life of every human. And notice that plan was in effect when? Before there was a single day of that plan started. What does all this mean, church family? What does all this mean? What does all this mean for you and I? It means... We are fearfully and wonderfully made creations of God because we are human. That means quite literally this, church family. It means you are not a mistake. You are not a product of chance. Instead, you are a product of intentional, intelligent, and loving, and glorious design, which means you are valuable. Why? Not because of what you look like. Not because of what you can do, not because of where you come from, not because of what family you were born into. Why are you valuable? Because you are in the image of God. Amen. And interestingly enough, that image, when sin enters the picture, the image is never removed, it's just broken. Which is why we as human beings in our brokenness look for whatever we can to provide value and meaning and hope for our life. But value and meaning and hope can only be found in, in, in the creation, in the heart and relationship with the creator who gives us his image. Which is why the picture of salvation as restoration is so beautiful. If you and I are in the image of God, we're like a mirror that's broken the image doesn't go away, but it's distorted. But oh, when the master craftsman comes in and restores that image, just why when you jump to the New Testament and Ephesians 2 says that you and I as human beings made in the image of God of highest value in the heart of God, that when you and I are born hostile to him, 
By nature, children of wrath, enemies to him. But God, what is God's valuing? What is God's, God's relationship as creator and possessor? But God, in his great mercy, loved us. It says, for by grace we are saved through faith, not as works of righteousness, but a gift of God. And then in verse 10, it says this, made in, so made in the image of God, broken by nature children of wrath, but God in his grace and mercy provides a way of salvation in Christ. It's received by grace through faith. And verse 10 says this, that you and I, your Bible will say, are, Christ, are God's workmanship, will probably be how most of your translations say. But that word workmanship, it literally means artistic masterpiece. As a human being, you are valuable because you are made in the image of God. You are unique, you are unique, awesome from all of creation. You are valuable because of the image you possess, and you are valuable because the heart of the God of God sees you valuably. By the way, when Jesus came, he didn't take on the form of a tree or a well because he didn't die to save the trees or the wells. He took on the form of a human because he died to save men and women. And interestingly enough, it's in our salvation that the rest of creation will ultimately be restored, according to Romans 8. If we are valuable, and that value is set in our humanity, the artistic masterpiece of God is known and experienced in salvation. Where that image is restored, where the ability to relate with our Creator is restored. You are not a mistake, and practically this is what it means. means the color of your hair, color of your eyes, how tall you are, what kind of body type you have, the gifts and talents you have, your personality. Not a single part of that is by chance, but is all a product of a hand knitting by God in the womb of your mother. Amen. Not only that, but you know what else it means. Because it says that he's got a plan. It means that just like every aspect of who you are is not a mistake, you were made to exist at a certain time for a specific reason, and there is a plan laid out for your life. Your life, my life, they are not purposeless. Amen. Why? Because God, who knows all things of humanity, who is present with humanity, who is the creator and possessor of humanity, has written and given us purpose. So think about, maybe you're a student, maybe you're an adult. Adults aren't immune from these things. I see it maybe come out more with students, but it's true. The times you go, man, if I was just more like so-and-so, you know what, praise God I'm not more like so-and-so because God didn't make me to be so-and-so. If I just had so-and-so's gifts, if I was just more like this person, if I was just more extrovert, if I was just this, if, if I just had more this validation. You see, understand what this passage is telling us, church family, we don't need validation and value from anyone. We have it because we are made in the image of God. And we can know and experience that value and that fullness and that fulfillment only inside of a right relationship with Jesus Christ. But here's what also this means. Did you catch some of the language in here? Obviously, life, human life is precious to God. He wouldn't put this kind of work into every part of it, but it means this. 
It means though you and I certainly, from a, from a human observation standpoint, are the results of a natural process, there's nothing about that natural process that is not sovereignly controlled and worked through by God. It also means this. If the plan for our life was written before there was not one of them, God sees us as people before we're ever even conceived. Because the moment of conception means one day of life for you and I. If personhood is prior to that because God has written the days for us before there was a single one of them, you see clearly in this passage that there is a reality that life begins in the womb, that unformed substance. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. It refers to conception and the point of life and the state we are in at that moment as unborn children. It also means this, if the Lord is the creator and possessor of all life, then when we think of and we speak of sanctity of life, of all human life, it means this, he is the author of life. God has the right to say when life begins. God is the author of life. The author is the only one who has the right to end the story. He is the possessor of all life, which means he has the right to give life and he has the right to end life, which means when we think about issues like the whole totality of sanctity of life, whether it's issues of, of, of abortion in the life of the unborn or whether it's issues of suicide in the life of a, of, of a healthy living person or whether it's issues of euthanasia at, at someone who is coming to the end, you and I never have the right to take life, even our own, because we aren't the author and owner of our life. Jesus Christ as creator is the author and owner of our life. There is a value that he gives that can be experienced. And let me just say, some of you undoubtedly, whether you're in this room, whether you're online, we live in a broken world. Amen. And as beautiful and awesome as human life is, Broken, battered, and sinful human life is harsh and painful and can do some of the most despicable things beyond what any can imagine. We live in challenging times. We said last week, if you're looking for any encouragement from the world, just stop. There's not any. Let's make it real clear. If you find yourself in this place today struggling with your values, struggling with your worth, struggling with how God made you, with, with the purpose God made you for, if you find yourself in this place today uh, legitimately facing and, and walking in a, a state of depression, or if you find yourself today in a place where even those thoughts of taking your own life are present, can I just beseech you by the mercies of God, raise your hand and ask for help? Because your life is valuable because God does have a plan and purpose for your life. And in that plan or purpose, he does not shield and protect us from, from all pain and all things. I'm not trying to promise that life is easy or without its hardships. Scripture doesn't promise that. But Scripture does say that your life matters to God. In fact, how much does it matter to God? Look at what else the psalmist says here. Verse 17, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. He speaks of God's thoughts. 
God says in Matthew 6 on passages about worry, he says that there's not a, a, a nameless sparrow that falls to the ground that he doesn't know. There's not a hair on your head that he doesn't know the precise number of. We see elsewhere in Psalms when we speak of, speak of the, the thoughts of the Lord, his thoughts towards us, and here he says that they outnumber the sand. So I thought I'd do a little math for all of us today. It's estimated that on earth there are 7.5 to 10 times 10 to the 18th power grains of sand. That means there are 7 quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand on the planet earth. Now there are 86,400 seconds in a day. And if we do the math and we say, okay, let's say God thinks about you, the number of the grains of, of, of the sand over the course of your life, let's give it an average lifespan of 80 years old. That means God thinks about you 2,972,792,998.5 times every second of your life. But I don't think that's the implication of the psalmist. I think the implication of the psalmist is that God is thinking about you more than the grains of the sand at every moment, which means that every second God would be thinking at, about you and about me personally, intimately, all-knowing, all-present, all-valuing, 86 trillion 805,555,555,555 555, and a half times per second is how much God thinks about you. And here's the great news about that. The twisting would be, ah, God thinks about me that much. It means that I'm who it's all about. No, understand, it's not about you or me. We're not the chief character of the story. But what's amazing about God is it is all about him. It is all about his glory. And the one who it is all about in the goodness of his grace and love has a heart that thinks about you and I 86 trillion times. And, and actually it says more than that. Oh, and by the way, the psalmist didn't give a number for the sand. So the only way I could estimate this is based on the number of grains of sand on the earth. I don't know what the number would be if you include all of existence. The point is God never does not think about you. And so if you find yourself in a place of needing help, reach out. Reach out to us as a, as a church staff. Reach out to a friend. If you're a friend and someone reaches out to you saying, I need help, and you go, I don't know how to give them help, let us know. We'll help you find them help. But if we're going to truly look at and say that all human life is sacred and therefore there is a sanctity of all human life, it means all human life and all the issues that come. Look at this last part with me. In God's valuing of human life, he is just. Look what the psalmist says almost abruptly. He says, oh God, that you would slay the wicked. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Here is the reality, church family. When it comes to issues of life, God is opinionated. Amen. And God is unapologetically pro all human life. He is not neutral on issues of the sanctity of human life. And church family, you and I live in a world that truly is wicked compared to God's heart. 
World Health Organization estimates 73 million abortions every year with nations like Iceland who proudly flaunt that they have eliminated Down syndrome by means of abortion. Euthanasia, it's at least 10 states in our nation that allow it. Netherlands saw more people in 2020 choose euthanasia than any before. We see movies in our culture, Oscar winners that make it look heroic and selfless. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. It's the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 34, and the fourth for those 35 to 44. In 2019, it was estimated that three and a half million people planned a suicide, one and a half attempted a suicide, and nearly 50,000 carried it through. In fact, today, there are two and a half times as many suicides in our nation as there are homicides. Sex trafficking and slavery, there's over 40 million people enslaved globally. There are more people enslaved today than at any point in human history. And they generate $150 billion a year with one in four being a child. We see issues of genocide. We see all over there are issues in our world where the, where the value of life, the value of a human being is lost. And we seem to treat each other and respond to each other as if we are property to be pushed past so that I can get me, myself, and I. And understand, church family, God isn't neutral about that. God is unapologetically for the sanctity of all human life because all life is in his image. And here is the great news. I have very little power to change things worldwide, but make no mistake, we're all called to play the part God has given us in the sphere that he's put us in. But what I do know is this, if there is any issue of the sanctity of life that anyone in this room or online has ever failed in, the great news is that same justice that God will pour out when the time is right on mankind is the same justice and wrath that God poured out on his son in whom you can find complete and total forgiveness and restoration. Because according to Romans 3, God saw fit to overlook the sins prior to Christ and to pour out his wrath on Christ that he might be both just and justifier of any man or woman who says, Jesus, save me. There is hope even in the midst of a wicked world where God sees justly. What do we do with all this, church family? Well, there's four simple responses. This passage calls you and I to praise God for, the, for his character and his work. So let me put this real practically. It steps on my toes every time. If you and I are gonna praise God for his fearful and wonderful creation, it means you and I have gotta stop saying and speaking degrading things over ourselves because you and I are not mistakes. We're made the way he desires us to be. We must praise him for how he made us. We, not, we must embrace who he made us to be and not jealously crave who God made someone else to be. We need to praise God. There should be a, a, a passion that comes up in our hearts in awe and wonder at the gift of life. 
Y'all are so sweet, church family, to love on our precious baby girl. She is so very active, and we love playing with her. But sometimes I love to just sit back and watch her. Why? Because it fills me with awe and wonder. That ought to drive us to praise the Lord. We should pray for God to bring justice upon, uh, upon the injustice, of justice upon the wicked, justice on you. See, this is the psalmist cries. Ultimately, he says all of this, and he says, Lord, bring your justice. Understand, God is opinionated, and we and I are called actively, at minimum, if nothing else, as people of God, to pray for his justice to come in. Not only are we to pray for his justice, but we're to side with his position. That's what the psalmist is doing here. Did you see that? Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. What is he doing? He's saying, Lord, you have an opinion on this. Lord, bring your justice in this. And Lord, I am going to stand with you. Understand, church family, just as God is not neutral on the value and sanctity of human life, so you and I do not get a pass to be neutral. And that's not me telling you everyone needs to run out and, and grab a sign and engage and look, some of us it's going to be in a political process. Some of us it's going to be with a coworker. Some of us it's going to be ministering to someone who's fallen and there's hurt. There's all sorts of ways God would use us, but you and I cannot be uninformed and neutral on the issue of human life. Amen. And we have to disciple and, and, and speak truth into each other of, of what life means. And the obvious things, we've mentioned abortion, suicide, euthanasia, race, genocide, all these things, but even things that are easily overlooked. When's the last time you saw God's creative beauty and value and were left in awe and wonder dealing with someone who can offer you absolutely nothing? Because that person who drives you crazy, who maybe society says can't really do anything, that person is fearfully and wonderfully made. And if we are going to stand with God's position on life, it has to be completely holistic. We don't just get to pick and choose the parts of human life we like. And lastly, it simply means this. Look at how the psalm ends. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. You and I need to seek God's evaluation of our lives to lay ourselves on the altar and say, Lord, here am I. If I've got faulty views, correct them. If I've got cowardly feet, strengthen them. If I've got quiet lips, fill them with words. If I'm not standing where you are, Lord, bring me there. Because, God, I want your evaluation and knowing of my heart. I know you've already evaluated and know it, but I want to be on board with what you see and what you say. Lead me in your everlasting way. And so, church family, we come to the point now where we're in a moment here. We're, we're going to have a time of invitation and response. Part of what we're going to do today in this time of invitation and response we'll do it like normal, but then I'm going to call for a, a, a moment of just congregational prayer. And I'm going to give you freedom in that moment. If you want to stay where you're seated, great. If you want to pray silently, great. If you want to pray out loud, great. If you want to move and come and spread around the altar, great. But hear the cry of the psalmist. What do we do in light of the fact that God's heart for humanity is all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful and all-creative and all-just? What do we do? We say, Lord, search me and know me because I want to walk your everlasting way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world 
There's not an issue of life today that's not a hot button topic on the news. There's not an issue of life today that forget the hot button topic. It comes down to an actual individual person, a body and soul made in your image, having the right to life. Lord, there are times your church and our country has done well with issues of life, and there are times we have done poorly with issues of life. And I can't speak for every church in America, but I just pray that we as the church family and and your body here at First Pflugerville, God, that our cry would be, search me, O God, and know me. Know my every anxious thought. See if there is any grievous way in me. Lead me in your everlasting way. Lord, we want to stand with you in your heart and your position on life. We want to be a place where any person that walks in here feels loved and valued and treasured because they experience your love and valuing of them through us. Be glorified, Lord. Holy Spirit, as you move, may we respond.